None of us need saving because we're not in jeopardy of life yet. We hardly let our convictions be known on the local level. And where no rescue is needed, God will not be there, but those men and women who are in places of leadership, who wrestle daily with the pagan ideologies and immoral philosophies of our culture and who take their stand for the word of God, with these God is present to save as he has been for Daniel and his friends. And the culture is benefited even if only slightly. How much greater could be our impact for good upon our culture and our government? If we stop bemoaning the decline of justice and the immorality of the age and started to make inroads into political service for God and country. Where are the Josephs who became vice-regent of an entire empire? Where are the Daniels and the Shadrachs and the Meshachs and the Abednegoes who have the ear of the president who advise the administrators, who defend the cause of God and truth and bless the nation that they serve. Some Christians won't even take the time to become informed voters and then get out and vote. (laughs) Sometimes our own sinful agenda keeps us from voting people into office who have some moral backbone in their platform. This must change in all walks of life. We need Christian artists, Christian musicians, Christian historians, Christian poets, Christian philosophers. Believers need to serve as chairpersons for civic organizations, boards, advisory committees. Whatever an impact for the gospel can be made, we need so we can touch the culture and transform lives. Do you know that Daniel served under three governments? Nebuchadnezzar, Darius the Mede, Cyrus the Persian. He never made it back to Jerusalem. He never returned with the exiles under Cyrus. We don't read of it. He was there. He was stuck, you could say. But he lived for God where he found himself. I got this little book from George. It was very enlightening. It's on Baptist patriots in the American Revolution. I wonder uh, if we know how much the Baptists played a role in the Constitution, in the Bill of Rights for America. Let me read a little bit of this for you. I stopped early so that I'm not taking any more time than usual. In June 1768, three Baptist ministers were arrested in Spotsylvania County, Virginia, 
on the charge of, quote, preaching the gospel contrary to the law. Really? There was a law against, well, preaching the gospel that they preached, yeah. May it please your worship, said the prosecuting attorney. They cannot meet a man on the road without trying to ram a Texas scripture down his throat. That sounds like Baptist, doesn't it? Witnessing. On refusing to pledge themselves to stop preaching in the county for a year and a day, they wouldn't do it. They were forthwith ordered to prison. And they were led through the streets of Fredericksburg to the county jail, singing as they went. While in prison for preaching contrary to the law, in obedience to Christ's commands and in accordance with the promptings of hearts, full of love for perishing souls, they proclaimed the glorious gospel to listening throngs through the prison doors and windows. And when they were set at liberty, they went forward avowed rebels against their tyrannical enactments on the statute books of Virginia. In Middlesex and Caroline counties, Virginia, many Baptist ministers were imprisoned. The jails into which they were cast were loathsome with a vermin. They were subjected to the treatment of common felons. Turn the page here if I can. And no legal effort was left untried to stifle their earnest efforts to win the lost to the cross. The Reverend James Ireland was thrust into prison for preaching in Virginia. And while in jail, an effort was made to destroy his life by putting gunpowder under the floor of his cell. But it was unsuccessful. Then his enemies tried to suffocate him by filling his little room with stifling fumes of burning brimstone and pepper pods. Finally, his physician jailer conspired to poison him and though the attempt did not immediately destroy him yet he never fully recovered from the effects of their atrocious dose but neither imprisonment nor threatened or attempted murder could silence this grand old minister or his courageous keep the people from hearing the imprisoned preachers a wall was sometimes built around the jails in which they were confined and half-drunken outcasts were hired to beat drums to drown out their voices. But they would preach. And the Spirit, as in apostolic times, blessed the testimony of the prison witnesses for Jesus. Baptist ministers were mobbed. Sometimes while they were immersing converts, men on horseback would ride out into the water and trying to turn the baptism into ridicule. They were often interrupted in their discourses. They were insulted. The law laid upon them its heavy hand. But they despised the jail, the lash, the malicious jeers. And when they were hunted down like wild beasts and denounced as wolves in sheep's clothing, they continued on preaching. In New England, they were frequently arrested for not paying taxes to support the congregational clergy. Now, here, here's what it was. In these, con uh, in, the, in these commonwealths, like Massachusetts and so forth, 
which were basically populated by Puritans, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, and such, there was a tax on the people to support the ministers. They didn't come in and have an offering box like we have up here, where people just put in what their conscience would dictate. No, there was a tax on them. So when they refused to pay the taxes, their property was seized, generally sold for a mere trifle to pay the church of their neighbors because of the standing order. That's what it was called. The standing order, you're all going to pay for the ministers. The sacred tax collectors at Sturbridge Mass, according to an unimpreachable witness, took pewter from the shells the skillets, the kettles, the pots, the warming pans, their workmen's tools, their spinning wheels. They drove away their geese, their swine, their cows. Nothing was spared. A brother recently ordained returned to Starbridge County for his family, and when he was thrust into prison, he was thrust, excuse me, he was thrust into prison and kept during the cold winter till someone and he finally was released. Starbridge is but a specimen of what was occurring all over New England, except in Rhode Island. Rhode Island was a Baptist colony. But our fathers submitted to robbery and loathsome prisons with foul associates rather than render willing obedience to iniquitous laws. If they're unjust, we're not obeying them. <laughs> in the East and in the South, Baptist witnesses from prison windows and sometimes with their scourge shoulders and backs and in a voice so holy as floated over the lips of the martyrs, they announced to the multitudes of men, unrighteous laws were conspiracies against God and the best interests of our race the plots of the evil one to be met by exposure and stern resists disobedience to which was loyalty to Jehovah. In other words, they were saying, we have an obligation not to obey because these are unjust laws. We're going to obey God rather than man. Bordering on revolutionary days, persecutions were more general than ever. And the testimony of Baptists against the crime of obeying sinful laws was in the very air and floating on the sunbeams of every morning. And when George III resolved on taxation for the colonies without representation, the example of the Baptists was already well understood and contagious. And so resistance to this despotical doctrine became the engrossing thought of the colonists of America. So they affected by their behavior. They gave the colonists an example. Look, if you got a, a wrong law that's being enacted, you have a civil responsibility to disobey it. And the colonists looked at the Baptists and said, yeah, that's what they've been doing for a long time. And we throw them into prison. But we're not going to obey King George. And so they didn't. Now, moving ahead a little bit in the book. talking about the Constitution of the United States and the Constitutional Congress. President Washington, Madison, others 
they were all for a state church. You know what I mean by state church? A state church is something the government says, hey, this is who we are, and this is where you will go to church, and this is how you will worship. Roman Catholicism, state church. Many countries, that's the only church. Time of the Reference, breaking away from that. The Baptists were always <laughs> breaking away from that. Numbers were anxious about the new constitution. And it had many open enemies. New constitution. Not ratified yet, just in the making. The Baptists who presented this address controlled the government of Virginia and they were the warmest friends of liberty in America. They will suffer anything for their principles, and as they suspect the new constitution, it must be amended to embrace their idea of soul liberty, or their hearty support. Soul liberty is the idea that each person must determine in their own soul where they're going to worship and how they're going to worship. You can't have to the soul of men and women. You're going to worship this or worship that. that. That was Nebuchadnezzar with Daniel and his three friends. I got this image out there in the plane, and you will worship it or you're going in the furnace. Well, we're not going to worship it and go ahead and throw us in the furnace. A few weeks later, James Madison and the special friend of Washington who aided him five months before in composing his first inaugural address to Congress, rose in the House of Representatives and proposed the religious amendment demanded by the Baptists with other emendations and declares that a great number of their constituents are dissatisfied with the Constitution, among whom were many respectable for their talents and their patriotism and respectable for the jealousy with which they feel their liberties. This language applies to his Baptist constituents' religions over the land. He pressed his scheme amidst violent opposition, and Congress passed it. Two-thirds of the state legislatures approved it, and it became part of the Constitution. Brethren, your First Amendment rights, freedom of press, freedom of religion, to turn the world of America right side up. No state church, no one church saying, you're going to go to our church, you're going to pay for all of our ministers, and you're going to support our programs, regardless of your creed or understanding. And the Baptist said, we can't do that. We can't go against our conscience. We can't go against soul liberty, which is one of the doctrines of the Baptist we owe this, not in some kind of idealistic way, but we owe addition to the Baptists, pushing the leaders, Washington, Madison, so forth. You want Rhode Island's vote on the Constitution? You want Virginia's vote on the Constitution? You want us signing on the Declaration of Independence? Then change this rule. Give us our liberty of conscience to worship God as we see fit.
And by the way, let me just, Baptists believe that for every person and every denomination. If you want to go out woods <laughs> and sit in front of a stone and worship that, the Baptists will be right there to defend you to do it. Go for it. If you want to be a fool, have at it. They're not going to say, no, you've got to come to the Baptist church at Thornville. No, you have to come to the... No. That's what the First Amendment's about. You can worship God as you see fit. You are free to be stupid. You are free to be wrong if you want to be wrong. Yes, this is what we believe, and this is what we're going to 